Good morning. It saddens me I am not with you all this morning while delivering this message. Rather than in my basement, speaking to the walls, couches, TV, toys, and of course, the hidden critters. Though they are certainly a captive audience, they aren't very interactive. While I'm thankful we live in a day and age where technology makes it possible to still meet in these uncertain times. I must admit, I miss the interaction, intimidating though it may be at times. Also thankful that God is sovereign, in control, and that he loves us with an everlasting, perfect love, greater than any we can imagine. The book of Acts, while a quote-unquote lowly history book, and I say this tongue-in-cheek as a history major, continuously reminds us of these things as we see God growing his church. The passage of Acts this morning starts in chapter 23, verse 12. But depending on your Bible, verse 11 is included in this section. Last week, Brother Jack ended with verse 11, speaking to a good heavenly father, visiting his child in the middle of persecution and accusations, which likely caused him some doubt, and rather encouraging and commending him. I believe Paul was discouraged, and unbeknownst to him, his life was again being threatened. Paul is attempting to accomplish the difficult task of incorporating and uniting Jewish and Gentile believers, while operating in an environment hostile to such unity. The early church was still working through difficult theological questions, and Jewish believers were having difficulty with how their new faith and foundational faith, Judaism, meshed, and how it applied, or didn't, to Gentile brothers and sisters. Regardless, Jesus' visit and encouragement are wonderful pictures of the perfect Father, and our loving intercessor, and how he treats his children. It is a great example for us to follow as we relate to others, especially children. As I read through this passage, I believe verse 11 marks the beginning of the end for Paul, and subsequent verses set the conditions for Paul to start his journey to Rome. At the time, he could not have known how it would end. And I wondered, as I contemplated the remainder of Acts, that if he had known, would he have done anything differently? In contemplating this, I believe not knowing our own future in minutia is a blessing. That kind of knowledge is a burden, as we see with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Lord spares us from that, and spared Paul that knowledge, allowing him to focus on the gospel, his mission, and trusting in the Lord's plan. Let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to open your word, to study it. Corporately, even though we are not together right now, Lord, we thank you so much for the technology and the conditions this, this morning and today that allow us to meet distantly, safely, uh, in these trying times, Lord. We pray for the leaders of this country, we pray for the leaders of other countries as they deal with the issues of today's day, Lord. And we pray for the church, 
We pray for the local church, this body of believers, our brothers and sisters, and we pray for the church at large, Lord, that we would be a light to this world, to lead by example, to show your love to each other, Lord. We pray that you would bless this time, bless the reading of your word this morning. And once again, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf, for a salvation that is greater than any that we can imagine, for the love that will not let us go, and that is indescribable and perfect. We pray all these things in your precious and holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 23, verse 11, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than forty who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though we were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him, and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside, and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than forty of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath, that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart, and commanded him, Tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen, and two hundred spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night, and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. He wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, 
having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I like alliteration. It helps keep me focused. And I'm fascinated with words and wordplay. I'm not perfect, so bear with me. As Steve Martin once said, some people have a way with words, and other people, oh, uh, not have way. Now I want to keep this message PC. So verse 11 shows Paul confirmed. PC, Paul confirmed in his desire mission to go to Rome. God himself said it will happen. So strap in. I also think this may have encouraged Paul in the knowledge he will survive the current trial, as God's words imply he will make it to Rome at the very least. God will lead. Paul will survive, come what may. That did not mean the journey would be an easy one. As soon as we move into the next verse... We see the game is afoot. Verse 12 shows a nefarious plan created. PC, plan created. A plan was created by more than 40 Jews, which included a strong caveat. They would not eat or drink until Paul was dead at their hands. Imagine, if you will, that you felt so strongly against someone you were willing to swear an oath that you would not eat or drink until that someone was dead. Now take your imagination one step further. Imagine you do not know this individual personally, but are angry enough to swear a strong oath to kill them based on what someone else told you they did even though the information may be faulty. This is in effect what occurred and indicates one or more of several things. Number one, this was a rash emotional oath. They did not think through either the consequences at this time as failure would require them to either break their oath or die or the logic of swearing to kill a man based on what they heard from an emotional mob. 
Number two, their anger was self-righteous, really directed at Jesus and his teachings, and coupled with the high emotions elicited by what was ultimately a lie, they convinced themselves this man was so dangerous a heretic, he must die regardless of the consequences. Number three, they were so confident in their half-thought idea, they could not conceive of failure. And, or, number four, they were fanatics who understood most, if not all of them, would likely die while imparting the coup de grace. Regardless, the plan was simple, if inelegant, and required participation by the priesthood as co-conspirators. Which is the next point. Priests, co-conspirators. PC. We do not know for certain the chief priests and elders agreed to this plan. But the very fact these zealots approached them indicates a belief on the part of the conspirators these religious leaders would be amenable to the plan. On one hand, their participation in a form of vigilantism is antithetical to the teachings of the law. Paul was a Jew, and prior to his conversion, a Pharisee in good standing with the very Sanhedrin who now sought to end his ministry and example through martyrdom. They, of course, would abstain from dirtying their hands with the deed, but their approval, tacit or otherwise, is contrary to to the approved method of executing justice according to the law. On the other hand, they viewed Paul's teachings as heresy and believed themselves well within their right as shepherds of the Jewish people to excise said heresy by any means necessary. Regardless of the semantics, their operational security was faulty. Luke doesn't address the how. But to borrow the parlance of spy novels, the Jews had a mole problem in the form of Paul's nephew. In this, God's handiwork has shown that the young man who was in a position to uncover this nefarious plot is a relative of Paul, illustrates the protective hand of God over Paul's ministry. We often assign such occurrences to chance or fate, or as the Irish would put it, luck. But I don't believe in the concept of luck, regardless of how much I love my Irish heritage. God's hand is shown in such things, guiding and directing according to his good will and pleasure. The young man, not wanting to see his uncle killed, went to the barracks to inform Paul of the plot. Paul immediately called for a centurion in the barracks and told him to take his nephew to the commander, Claudius Lysias, as he had important news to give. I do not believe it is a stretch to say that centurions and their commander were extra sensitive to matters relating to Paul following his revelation in chapter 22. And Claudius, to his credit, listened to Paul's nephew and took action at the plight of a citizen, P.C., plight of a citizen. To be fair, much goes into his decision to act upon this intelligence. Number one, he likely already intended to send Paul to Felix, 
as he did not have the authority to deal with the issue as tribune. That right was reserved for the proconsul, or governor. He was responsible for the security of the region, and after the initial violence was quelled, any resulting civil or criminal cases were the responsibility of Felix. As a commander, number two, he could not allow Paul, a Roman citizen, to be murdered under his care. The resulting violence of the successful conclusion of the plot would likely result in an investigation. Should Paul's citizenship come to light, Claudius would be blamed for his death and likely be removed from his position, if not worse. Number three, a man responsible for the law and order of such a volatile region as Palestine would not wish to risk the potential outbreak of violence the murder of Paul may cause. His decision to act so quickly and decisively was predicated on such eventualities. And he calls two centurions and directs them to gather 470 men, about half the garrison of Jerusalem, to escort Paul under cover of darkness to the governor Felix in Caesarea. With them he sends the prose of a commander, P.C. prose of a commander, in the form of a letter, which frankly contains humorous insight that lying for political expediency occurred at least as early as 1st century A.D. I also understand this is the only recorded secular letter in the Bible, and it is fitting to have happened in a book written by a man focused on details. Luke records the contents of the letter in Acts chapter 23, verses 26 through 30, without having seen the letter himself. The scripture is full of examples which illustrate scripture is inspired by God, of which this record is one. Luke could not have known what Claudius Lysias wrote to Felix, but God did. While some scholars would say Luke reconstructed the letter in scriptures based on his knowledge and understanding of history and political exchange, others would agree the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to faithfully record the literal contents of the letter. The letter begins with an introduction, such as, Hey you, this is me. And the commander follows with a, mostly true, account of the matter at hand, with some self-aggrandizing and slight exaggeration of his actions to put himself in the most favorable light possible. I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Of course, he left out the part where he learned Paul was a citizen after he had him bound and about to be flogged. But what Felix doesn't know won't hurt him. He further states he believes Paul to be innocent of any civil or criminal charge, and that the matter which created the tumult is of a religious nature. This is an important distinction from a legal standpoint. Rome did not, as a general rule, interfere with theological issues unless it spilled into the civil or criminal realm. They represented secular law and took that responsibility seriously as it applied to their own citizens. In stating that he believed Paul to be innocent of any offenses 
in the secular realm, Claudius Lysias is admitting the only reason Paul is currently under guard is for his own safety. Of course, the Romans would allow the Jewish accusers their day in court, as was their custom. However, unless there was a specific criminal or civil charge brought before Felix, under Roman law, there was really no good reason to imprison him, save to appease the Jews. He ends the letter by reporting the threat to Paul's life as the reason he is expeditiously moving Paul to Caesarea with such an unusual guard. After he pens the letter and hands it to one of the centurions, 470 Roman soldiers and Paul depart for Caesarea by way of Antipatris, a journey of approximately 63 miles. In this transition, we see the province changed, and I want to pause here and mention that it was not actually the literal province, but I use that for alliteration purposes to, to denote a change in scenery from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Province changed, B.C., the path of centuries, which illustrates the path they took, and centuries being plural, more than one uh, cohort of 100 soldiers or more. And the plot confounded P.C. While this is not in the scriptures, I imagined the interaction between the commander and representatives from the Sanhedrin the following morning, and subsequent discussions between the elders and chief priests. What of the over 40 conspirators? Were they already in their places when news reached them of Paul's departure? Imagine their consternation the following day when they realized Paul was effectively out of their reach in Caesarea. Now they were in a bind as they swore an oath to abstain from food and drink until Paul was dead. Under that oath, they now stand divinely cursed if it is not fulfilled. I could not help but think of an Old Testament example of a rash oath the oath-taker later deeply regretted, Jephthah. Jephthah swore an oath he would sacrifice the first thing which came through his doors to greet him, should the Lord grant him victory over Ammon. Never in a million years did he imagine his beloved daughter would be the one who first greeted him. The Bible has several passages addressing oaths and warns against rash vows in Proverbs. Jesus later taught against taking oaths, stating rather, Let your yes be yes, and your no, no. I believe this to be another warning in Scripture against making a rash oath or vow. Luke, under inspiration from the Holy Spirit, took the time to record the detail of the vow the conspirators took. Of course, it serves the purpose to highlight their fanatical hatred of the teachings of Jesus. Paul was a proxy of their hate in this circumstance or instance. But I also believe we can take a lesson from this. That said, Luke is silent on subsequent details surrounding the fallout of the foiled plot. But I imagine their co-conspirators were instrumental in ensuring they could break their oath with little or no consequence. Paul is brought before the governor in the morning. Felix was a former slave 
who had been elevated to a position of high leadership due to the sponsorship of several people in positions of power. Felix did follow protocol by granting an initial hearing of the details of the case. However, while I don't want to get too far into subsequent chapters, I believe his subsequent treatment of Paul is foreshadowed by his initial attempt to shuffle Paul's case to a different provincial leader in verse 34. When he realized Paul was from a part of the Roman Empire quite a distance away, which did not have his equivalent, he agreed to take the case. There were two reasons for doing so. Number one, by moving Paul to Cilicia, he would anger the Jews, as they would have to travel a much greater distance to accuse Paul. And, number two, the leadership of that province was under a higher position than he, and that individual would likely not wish to be bothered with such a small case. So he directed Paul to be kept in Herod's Praetorium in Caesarea, P.C. Praetorium in Caesarea also could be listed as the prison, uh, as he was effectively kept under guard. It is an interesting aside to note that this may have been the place where God struck down Herod Agrippa I in chapter 12. As we end this chapter, Paul finds himself on the cusp of his first step toward Rome, though he's not yet taken that step. He is sitting in Caesarea alone, awaiting his accuser's arrival from Jerusalem. He does not know it at this point in the story, but his time in Caesarea will exceed two years without any real charges, at least under secular Roman law, being laid against him. There are several interesting things to consider about Paul in the context of the greater narrative surrounding and including this passage. Number one, the man God chose to expand his church to the Gentiles was a naturalized Roman citizen and was thus afforded the protections and opportunities such citizenship grants. As far as scripture allows us to know, none of the other apostles could claim that. Had Paul not been a citizen, in this circumstance he would have likely been flogged, then handed over to the Jewish leaders for deposition, and likely killed. To be frank, he may have been killed from the flogging alone, as he had already been flogged five times prior to this. Flogging was the harshest form of a beating, with the whip known as a cat of nine tails with embedded bits of bone and metal, used to quite literally shred a man's back. His back was likely a mess of scar tissue, and the physical strain of another beating may have been too great for Paul to survive. He also would not have been able to appeal directly to Caesar, though I am now getting ahead of myself. Number two, he was a former Pharisee, held in high regard by the Sanhedrin, and now an influential believer in and follower of Christ. This dual nature uniquely qualified Paul to help incorporate Gentiles into the church. He knew the law forward and backward, and also knew Christ intimately, having penned multiple letters under divine inspiration and received several visits from him. He would have known all the objections Jews, specifically Jewish believers, would have with incorporating Gentiles into the church. Number three. Paul's mission was not to defend himself against specific charges in court, 
but to provide witness to God in a public forum wherever he went. This would be difficult to do. I always feel the need to defend myself when I stand accused of something. But Paul's primary responsibility was to provide witness to God, even at the expense of allowing himself to be falsely accused. Not to say he did not provide a defense, but his primary purpose was to publicly provide a witness for God, and he's about to get several opportunities before influential people. The Bible does not record the results of such a witness, but I do not believe it wrong to assume many people in positions of authority at various levels of Roman government or those in the audience were affected by Paul's witness. Persecution spread the church throughout the empire and beyond, and Paul standing falsely accused and wrongly imprisoned was a form of persecution he had to endure to the end of his days. Persecution, according to Jesus, also blesses those who endure it. Matthew 5, 10-12 Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The author of Hebrews also exhorts and encourages the believer, enduring the hardships of life with both the reminder we have an audience of people who went before us, and that Jesus, whom we are to look unto, endured infinitely more than we ever could for our sakes. May we be encouraged also to be a witness for our Lord, regardless of the response from the world. As far as application goes at the end of this message, just a few takeaways which I talked about or spoke to in the passage and the message itself. The first is related to God's encouragement of Paul in verse 11. It is a good reminder that we should seek to encourage our fellow believers, especially when they are going through times of trouble. And as God relates to us as a good father to children, so too should we encourage our children. Number two, we should not take rash emotional vows or make rash emotional statements, jump to conclusions. Uh, and I think that in today's day and age, that is especially pertinent. But we are warned in Scripture multiple times uh, in many different mediums that taking a rash vow or an oath without first thinking through the consequences, or if you look at the New Testament teaching of Jesus, not taking an oath at all, but allowing your yes to be yes and your no, no. In this particular passage of Scripture, I believe that is once again highlighted by Luke uh, as he highlights this vow that is taken by the conspirators, that they are forced to break. And lastly, just an encouragement uh, to endure persecution. As we look at Paul starting his mission, starting his journey toward Rome uh, at the end of Acts, uh, which tradition ultimately would say leads to his death, uh, he does suffer persecution. He does suffer hardship and trial, false accusation. He's reviled for the Lord's sake, and he provides a witness for the Lord. And so I believe that that is an encouragement for us in all things 
to be bold, to be a witness for our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity once again to open your word, to study it, and to learn from it, Lord. We pray that we would learn today from Paul, your servant Paul, and his forbearance in this difficult time of trial, Lord. We thank you so much for this record of Paul and his journey to reach the Gentiles and to incorporate them into the church. Is it, it is, in effect, the history of how we uh, came to be into, in your family, Lord. And we thank you so much for the work of these early church believers as they sought to spread the gospel the good news, the message of your son's sacrifice on our behalf to the world, to a world who needed it. It was desperately, desperately seeking a Savior. Lord, we thank you so much for that undeserved sacrifice. We thank you for for the gift of your son. Thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to go to the cross on our behalf, to take our sin upon you and to die and to be raised again so that we today may serve a living Savior and have hope in all things. Lord, we thank you so much. And we praise you. And we pray all these things in your precious and holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen.